You're listening to a message from Victory Church of the Bay Area. For more information, please visit us on our website at victoryus.org. Good morning, everyone. My name is Neil Bernardino. I am the pastor of this church. We have a brand new series entitled Selfless. Since this is the month of February, a lot of people think about the word love. But a lot of times when we talk about love, there are so many ideas or notions or definitions of love that people have that it's so hard to determine what love is. That's why we have a lot of songs that sing about love, that want to know what love is. But what we're going to do today is we're going to talk about this topic of love and where it relates most, especially in our relationships and particularly in marriage and how you relate with other people. For the next four weeks, we're going to talk about having selfless love, and then we're going to talk about marriage, what God has to say about love and marriage, and what God has to say about our relationships, and letting that love manifest through us through acts of love and compassion. And what we want to do is we want to see love not in light of how we want to define it, but in light of our relationship with Jesus Christ. And God is the source, the originator of love. And love is actually not a concept that people defined or came up with. It's something God is. So let's open our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us, And gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this new series. Lord, it's not just a sermon series, a program that we have, but it's really looking at the truths of your word and allowing your word to be embedded in our hearts and and help transform our lives. And so today, Lord, and in the coming weeks, we ask that you would speak to us concerning this topic of being selfless and manifesting your love, especially in our most important relationships. And uh, Father, help us to understand how you see and define love so that we can manifest your love in our lives to others. Lord, we thank you. We commit this service to you for your glory and honor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we'll focus on basically today on the most important motive for life, and that is love. And love is actually one of God's primary attributes or characteristics. The immediate context of our text here, Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, is found actually in the verses prior to that and a few verses after those two verses. Just to give you a background, the book of Ephesians was actually a letter written by the Apostle Paul when he was in Rome, when he was under house arrest. He went through Ephesus during his second and even in his third missionary journey. His church there was established and he spent some time there and it became a center for evangelism and a church was birthed in the city of Ephesus. Ephesus was one of the major metropolitan centers in modern-day Turkey now. So before, if you've been to Turkey, you can go to Ephesus, actually, and see some of the places where the Apostle Paul preached the gospel there. So, But a mighty church was there. 
the epistle that Paul wrote, an epistle basically means letter. The book of Ephesians was a letter or an epistle written by Paul to the church at Ephesus. And it's interesting, you look at the New Testament, you'll find the Gospels, okay, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then you have the book of Acts, and then at the end of the New Testament, you have the book of Revelation. But in between, you have all these letters, letters of the apostles, and most of the letters in the New Testament were written by Paul. Some were written by the Apostle Peter, and some other authors were there. But Paul was the primary author of most of the New Testament epistles. And in some of the epistles that Paul wrote, like the ones he wrote to Corinth, he dealt with issues in the church. Now, some of you would say, what? That early on, there were issues in the church? You know, there are no perfect churches. Can I say that? So if you're looking for a perfect church, you will never find it. As long as there are people in church, it will be imperfect. So, and yes, they had issues in the churches back then. Most of the letters written by the Apostle Paul addressed some of those errors, some of those heresies, some of those issues, and some controversies that were happening among the Christians. But the unique thing about the book of Ephesians is that it was a letter that did not address any grave heresy or any spiritual error or any issue in the church. As a matter of fact, it was written to encourage the people in the church in Ephesus to really seek God for his wisdom and revelation so that they would know him better. And in knowing him, they would know their purpose. Here in the book of Ephesians, you'll see the Apostle Paul speaking of God's overall purpose for the earth and that how he uses the church, the body of Christ, the body of believers, to be his vessel for his manifold wisdom to be revealed through. The people who were reconciled to God were brought together by God to become his family, his church, to be his agent, agents of change for the earth. As some preachers way back in the late 80s that I heard, I forgot the name, but uh, here's what I remember him saying. God had no plan B for the earth but Jesus. God had only one plan for the earth, Jesus Christ. There was no plan B. And Jesus Christ had no plan B on the earth. He only had one plan, and that is through his church. You see, in all of God's wisdom, he is an omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, and he's all-knowing, and in all his divine wisdom, he decided to let a group of people who were imperfect, but who were being perfected by his grace, he chose them to be his vessels to bring about the gospel. We can't fathom that, we can't understand why, but I can tell you this, it's a great privilege. And he gives us his grace so that we can participate in God's mission for the earth. The context, if you look at chapter 4, verse 17, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Now I want you to take note of this word, walk. So Paul was giving instructions to the Ephesian believers to put off the old self, the self that was under the sinful nature, 
and to put on the new self in Christ. He encouraged the Ephesian believers to put on the new self in Christ. The Bible says in Corinthians that if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. You are a new creation. So if you are a believer, if you put your faith in Christ, you are not to still identify with your old self, old sinful ways. When you become a follower of Christ, you turn away from your sinful ways. You turn. You don't walk in those ways anymore. You have a new way. You have a new walk to do. You have a new journey. You're walking with Christ. And so he was reminding them about putting off the old and putting on the new. In Ephesians 4, 22 and 24, it says there that Paul was encouraging them that they were to put off their old self, which belongs to their former manner of life or former way of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of their minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Created in the likeness of God. Created in the image of God. Put on that new self. So when you put your faith in Christ, did your face change? Did you become taller? Some of us, it's funny. Here in the U.S., a lot of people want to get darker. In the Philippines, from where most of you came from, a lot of us there wanted to become lighter skinned. We are never satisfied. But we are created in the image of God, regardless of how we look. When we became believers in Christ, we put on a new nature. And by virtue of our relationship with Jesus, He now begins His transformative work in our lives so that He can make us more like Him in our character. So that we would reflect Him, not in the way He looked physically, but how he was in his character. That's what you call Christ-likeness. And then Paul gives practical instructions on how a believer is to walk in Christ in the remainder of chapter 4. And then he continues on in chapter 5 and verses 3 and so forth. He differentiated between the old way of life and the new way of life. And in verses 3 to 21 of chapter 5, we're not going to read it. He mentioned sexual immorality. He mentioned covetousness. We are going to unpack that on week three. So we're going to talk about that because sexual immorality is very rampant in society. And it is one of the things, one of the primary things that destroy relationships. It destroys marriages. It destroys covenants between people. It destroys trust. And that's why we need to talk about that. In a common theme that we see in this context, in the passage that we read, we will see two things. First is this. We have this theme called walk. Again, when you talk about walking, it's not just the, the physical you know, moving of your body from point A to point B, using your feet in making steps. Yes, it does refer to that in some areas, but in a spiritual sense... Especially when the authors would speak about one's journey or one's relationship with God, they describe it as your walk with God. 
How is your walk with God? How are you walking with God today? Are you walking with God today? Are you in step with God or are you going somewhere else? The Greek word for walk means to live or behave in a specified manner. Basically, the word means how one lives his or her life. So when you talk about the word walk, which is a theme in Ephesians, it speaks about how one lives his or her life. How is your walk with God? How is your walk with Jesus? That means how are you living your life now that you are in relationship with Jesus Christ? Is it the same old life or is it new? Are you becoming more and more like Jesus Christ every day? So how are we to walk as believers? And as we look at this, we see the second theme, which actually is the motivation for all our relationships. And that is the theme of love. So when we talk about walk, the manner how you live, the way you live your life, and so how are you to walk with God? You are to walk with God through His love. Walk in love. People today are so longing for love. They're trying to find love. And because of the different ideas or notions of love out there, we can't find what real love is. How many of you thought you found real love, but in the end, it hurt you so bad? It messed up your life real bad. You got betrayed. You got used. You got abused. But you said that was love. How many people say they're being abused already and they say, this is love. So they try to look for love, but they can't find it because they're trying to look for love in so many ways. They don't know what they're looking for. Can you find something that you don't know what it is you're trying to find? Sometimes when you don't know what you're trying to look for, it may be right in front of you and you completely miss it. Can I tell you something? God's love is always right in front of us. But because we don't understand God's love, we see love as defined something else. And we totally miss the love of God that is right in front of us through the people He sends. So what people do is they look for love and they don't find real love. And so they settle for counterfeit forms of love. Baby, if you love me, you will do this with me. But we're not married yet. But if you love me, you'll do it. If you love me, you will do this. How many of you grew up hearing this from your parents? If you don't obey me, if you don't do what I say, I don't love you anymore. And then you go, please love me, love me. I will do whatever you say. I'll do whatever you ask of me. Just make sure that you always... But just, so you, you don't want to lose that love. You see, the world's idea of love is so different from God's definition of love. We see people, you know, make love, not war. Love wins. The question now is, how do you define love? Is it the same definition as God's definition? The world's idea of love is a love that is centered on self, focused on what the self can get. We crave love. But we always see the object of love is ourselves all the time. And that's why it's always about us. It's always about how we feel. It's always about how people make us feel. And that's the problem. 
You see, love, the way God designed it to be, is not supposed to be self-centered. It's supposed to be selfless. It's supposed to be focused on others. It's supposed to be sacrificial. It's supposed to put other people first. The world's idea of love is, what can I get from this relationship? What will I benefit from this relationship? It's always what I can get. It's all centered on me and my feelings. But the Bible does speak of God's love in these terms. Of course, you, you've already heard this so many times. Let's read it again. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 8. It says, Your love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. Ouch. How many of you know people who believe in the philosophy of it's my way or the highway? Love does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing. In another translation, it says it does not keep a record of wrongs. How many of you can still remember the offense of your spouse 25 years ago? I can't believe you did that 25 years. I can't forget that. I don't know if I can forgive you for that. See, that's not love. Let's continue. It rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And in the next verse, it says, love never ends or love never fails. Now, why is love like this? Now, if you look at it, Love was described in terms of characteristics of personalities. Patient, kind, does not envy or nor boast. It is not arrogant. That's an attitude. Rude. How many of you know rude people? How many of you are rude yourselves? See, all these things reflect character because love is seated in your character. The Bible says... That God himself is love. You see, everything that is said here is true of love. But since the Bible says God is love, everything you see here is true of God. Because God himself is love, the Bible says. In 1 John 4, 8, in the Amplified Bible, it says there, The one who does not love has not become acquainted with God and never did know him. So don't say you know what love is if you don't know God because love came from God. And if your definition of love is different from how God has defined it, then you've never really known what love is. The point here is this. We can only know true love when we know whom love came from. We can only know what true love is if we know the one who is love himself. Love is one of the most primary characteristics or attributes of God. Love came from God and He defines it, not people. Who gets to define things? It's people with authority, right? Or the ones who created stuff. So if Apple created this iPhone, can you redefine it into your own ways? You can customize it, but it's still going to serve the purpose why it was created. But if I use this 
as a belt buckle may not look good, may look flashy, but it may not look good. Some people might use this as a shoehorn or a paperweight, very expensive paperweight, or maybe something to throw at their husband when they're mad. You get what I'm saying here? When we redefine something that we did not create, nor we have the authority to do so, we end up destroying things. We end up destroying it. When we redefine what our lives are, if we say, I define what my life is going to be, guess what? That means you're going to destroy your life right then and there. Because the moment you redefine your life and you did not create yourself, you're saying to God who created you, you're not going to define me, I will define my life. Do you have the eternal perspective? Do you have the eternal power to sustain your life apart from God? Do you know all things? You don't. See, that is arrogance. That's what man has come to when humanism says, we don't need you, God. Man is the ultimate thing in life. Man is the ultimate standard of life. I will define my life. And when we see that happen, we end up destroying things. And you know what we destroy? We destroy our lives, and we also destroy the lives of other people. We destroy our relationships. Have you seen that happen? Sadly, man's arrogance has brought about all these ills in the world. The one who does not love has not become acquainted with God, does not and never did know Him in the first place. He just thought He did, but He never did. For God is love. If you do not love and you claim to know God, you're deceived. For He is the originator of love, and it is an enduring attribute of His nature. Love is an enduring attribute of God's character and nature. So the question now is, how can we know what love is when we don't know whom love comes from? And here's the thing. God doesn't make it a riddle, a puzzle. He makes it plain. That's why He has given us His Word. If we seek Him in His Word, we will find the truth. If we seek Him, we shall find it. And if we come to know Him, we will know the truth. And the truth will set us free. You see, God did not make it a mystery. Some people try to make this Bible more complicated than it is. They say, you know, each word, each letter has a cryptogram, a secret code, a Bible code, and everything like that. When the real meaning is right in front of you. You want to know how He ultimately expressed His love for us? First, He showed His love for us by creating us. But He ultimately expressed His love for us through Jesus Christ, His one and only Son. Jesus is the ultimate expression of God's love for all humanity. And in John 3.16, we see that. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish. And here, talking about perish, perishing for all eternity. Should not perish, but have eternal life. God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son. Can you sacrifice your Son for people who do not know you? It's an unthinkable thing, right? That's how much God loves us. That He gave His one and only Son. He's best. He gave us this new life. And in this new life, believers are called children of God. Beloved children, actually. 
In John chapter 1, verses 11 through 13, it says there, He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him, but to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. So you only have the right to become a child of God only by faith in Jesus Christ. We are all created by God, but He becomes a father to us. We are adopted into His family, and we have the right to be called children of God when we put our faith in Him. He gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. In the NIV, it says they're born of God. That's why Jesus said we must be born again. We can't just add Jesus and good works and Bible knowledge to our sinful life. We have to be regenerated and regeneration. Being born again is a miraculous thing. We can't produce it. We can't say today, I'm going to be born again. And we can't bring our parents, can you share to my parents? Could you make him born again? We can't make anyone born again here. The born-again experience is a supernatural phenomenon that only God can do in a human being when that human being puts his faith in Christ. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. And when we become born again and we are part of his family, we are called beloved children. The word beloved, it just simply means dearly loved and cherished, sometimes preferred above all others and treated with partiality. What does that mean? Does God play favorites? Now, let me put it this way. How many of you have children? Now, when you see kids walk around, you go, oh, they're so cute. But who are you going to feed every day? It's going to be your kids. Some of you here adore our kids, but not to the point that you're going to feed them every day and clothe them and give them allowance every day. We are the ones who's going to do that. You know, I love the children here, but I'm not going to give allowance to all of the children here. It's only to my kids. I do that because I am their father. I will do that with my kids. Of course, I will do that. See, that's what God does to His children. His favor is upon them. As God's beloved children, we are loved and accepted by God, not by our merits, but by the merits of His Son, Jesus Christ. We have been forgiven of our sins. As beloved children, we have received things that we do not deserve. We receive grace from God. We receive mercy and forgiveness. And even if we mess up, He still gives His blessing to us. Come on, He's a good Father. He's the best Father. He's adopted us into His eternal family. In Christ, we are no longer condemned. We deserve to be condemned because of our sins, but in Christ, there is now no condemnation. The sentence we deserve has been lifted, and we no longer will face that sentence because we've been forgiven, redeemed. We have been bestowed with His righteousness, and in His eternal hands, we are eternally secure. There's no fear of what is ahead. And you see, Christ saved us by His grace, and it's only by His grace we continue to live in Him. So if we are beloved children of God, what are we to do? Going back to our main text, we will see 
that the first thing we are encouraged to do by the Apostle Paul is to be imitators of God. To imitate God. Be imitators of God. How many of you have kids that imitated you? I asked permission from my sons if I could post these pictures and they agreed reluctantly. This is Joshua. And look at that. He's wearing my shirt. I lost this shirt. This is one of my favorite shirts. That's a Green Lantern shirt. I love it so much that because I loved it, he would want to wear it. And look at this one. He took my shirt, my tie, my slacks and my shoes, and my Bible because he was trying to hold up my pants. He was holding the Bible. Look, look at his stance. He was imitating me what? Preaching. And he couldn't hold the Bible, so he stuffed it inside the pants. So he was imitating his dad. And here, Luigi, when he was younger, he took my socks and my running shoes, and then he walked around. Kids imitate their parents. I have three boys. These are two of them. There are some things that you imitate, and there are some things that you just inherit. For those of you listening in the podcast, sorry, we can't show you the picture. But you see here, sonship is more than just being born to a biological father. Sonship has to do with being raised by that father and that mother. Being raised in the ways of the father. Being raised in the values of the parents. That is why in the the early civilizations, part of the education of children were to become the apprentice of their fathers. They learn their father's trades and they succeed the family business. Continue in the ways. That's why the Bible says in Proverbs 22 verse 6, Train up a child in the way he should go, so even when he is old, he will not depart from it. You are a son to your father when you're born to that family, but you are more a son to that father when you move and walk in his ways, in his values that he has taught you, and now which you've embraced as your own. Let me point this out to you. How many of you have said this? How many of you spouses said this to your spouse? When your kids are acting up weird or goofy, and then all of a sudden you, you talk to your spouse, your son, it's not our son. Your son did this. What are you implying? See that little monkey? The reason why he's a little monkey is because he's seen a big monkey. And usually the spouses don't refer to themselves as the monkeys. When you tell your spouse, your son did this, it's not because your son looks like your spouse. It's because your son is acting and moving in ways just like your spouse. If it's bad, you say your son. But if something good, our son. And even if the traits were not inherited from you, you dip in anyway. Our son. (laughs) But are you getting what I'm saying here? Sonship is not just being born to a set of parents, it's being raised by those parents in their ways, in their values, in their culture. And here's this, everything God is and does are all good and well. God does not do anything bad. All His ways are just, all His ways are good. He is all good. And I like what Augustine said, we are sons of men when we do ill. 
but we are sons of God when we do well. Because we reflect our good Father. You see, we imitate God because He is our Father. That's what Paul was saying to the Ephesians. If you want your relationships to be well, your marriage, your relationship with other people, with your kids, then let it be founded on your relationship with God, who is love. And the foundation of that relationship it should be love, the way God defines it. Ephesians 5.1, the Amplified Bible, same verse 1 that we read. Therefore, become imitators of God, copy Him, and follow His example. As well, beloved children, imitate their father. That's why fathers, you have a very big responsibility to be a good example to your children. So if we are beloved children, favored by God, we will imitate Him in the way we live our lives. If we are also beloved children of God, then we are to walk in love. That's the second thing Paul said here. We see that in Ephesians 5 verse 2. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. And see, this verse resumes Paul's discussion on love being the unifier, the thing that makes unity in the church possible. A lot of people talk about unity. There's no unity. You know when unity will happen? Unity is a byproduct of what? If we love, there will be unity in the church. Ephesians 4 verses 1 through 3, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk, there you go again, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. You are to walk with all humility, with gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And we are able to walk in love when we know God. 1 John 4, 19 says this, We love because He first loved us. Ephesians 5, 2 in the Amplified Bible gives us further insight. says this, And walk continually in love, that is, value one another, practice empathy and compassion, unselfishly seeking the best for others, just as Christ also loved you. So just as Christ did all these things for you. Just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and sacrifice to God slain for you so that it became a sweet fragrance. Walk in love. That means value one another. Practice empathy and compassion. Unselfishly seek the best for others, not for yourself. That's what love is. It seeks to give, not to get. You see here, from this very text, we see that love is a verb. It's an action word. Love is a choice. We can choose to do these things. By the grace of God, He will enable us. See, the starting point in loving others, like Christ, is to understand and experience God's love for us first. And if we understand and have experienced the love of God and continually experience His love, then we are enabled to move in love towards others. As I conclude, as Christians, we know that Jesus is love. Romans 5.8 says this, but God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were still His enemies, while we were still rebelling against Him, 
while we were still independent from Him, while we were still minding our own business, insisting our own ways, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He gave His life. This is the message of the gospel. If we just learn to love one another, then we will see this love transform not only us, but society. It can transform culture. We have to learn to love. The only way for us to learn to love is to know Him where love comes from. John 13, 34, Jesus said this, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. See, Jesus is our great example. He is our exemplar. He did it, and He set the example. He did everything on earth as a man. He is God, 100%, who became man, 100%, as well. And as man, He relied on the grace of God the Father to do what the Father had purposed for Him as a man. And as a man, He did it by the grace of God, by the power of the Spirit, and He is our example. And by His grace, we can do all things through Him who gives us strength. I'd like to end with this. You see, this is the love we personally need. And this is also the same love that we need to demonstrate before others. The world is longing. The world is crying out for genuine, real love, authentic love. Love that is not defined by a minority. Love that is not defined by independent people. Love that is not defined by sinful people or by sinful society. Love that is not defined by pop culture. People in this world are longing for the real kind of love that only God can give them. And guess what? The way for those people to encounter the love of God, it's through His people. How many of you have become followers of Jesus Christ? It is through you and I. God will demonstrate His love to others. That's why I'd like to end with this. I'd like for us to pray. Experiencing Christ's love enables us to express it to others. We can't express what we have not experienced. You can't feel. People know when you're faking it. Oh yeah, I've seen it. Yeah, yeah. But for those who really have seen it, oh man, there's a difference. How many of you have experienced God's love? Have experienced the Christ who gave Himself for you? If you've experienced Him, that experience and that continuous experience of His love will enable you to express that love to others. Let's pray right now. Let's be in an attitude of prayer. Father, let Your people walk in the fullness of Your love by the power of Your Spirit and by Your grace. Fully representing You, fully honoring You, and Lord, reveal Yourself through Your people as they give themselves more and more to You and to Your purpose. We glorify You, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's give the Lord a hand.